This is Marketing Smarts, a podcast committed to helping you become a savvier marketing leader no matter your level. In each episode, we will dive into a relevant topic or challenge that marketing leaders are currently facing. We will also give you practical tools and applications that will help you put what you learn into practice today. And if you missed anything, don't worry. We put worksheets on our website that summarize the key points. Now, let's get to it. Welcome to Marketing Smarts. I am Ann Candido. And I am April Martini. And today we're going to talk about what happens when brand truly leads business, truly, truly leads business. So often we have conversations with our clients and our prospects that reference big brand success, quote unquote. And they look at those brands and wonder, and they're just like, oh, we have no idea how they reach such success and what it takes to get there. Or on the other side, there's the perspective that it just somehow magically happens overnight. And the amount of hard work, diligence, consistency, and investment truly needed is completely discounted. So regardless of which side of the coin you're on, the truth of the matter is that big brands become big brands by making brand the focal point and the decision-making metric for anything the company does. Yeah, and there's even another side of that coin, April, if you can have three sides to a coin, which (laughs) is that a lot of people say, well, I just have a widget. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. really have anything that's special enough to become a brand. And what we say is that anything can become a brand. It's about cultivating it in a way that actually allows it to grow in that way. And that becomes the essence then of what you create everything around your business about. Yeah, exactly. So due to all of that, we decided to bring someone from one of the big brands on the show to discuss this topic, give you a peek behind the curtain, and really give some very tangible examples from a brand we all know and many, many of us love. And that is Steve Robinson, the former CMO of Chick-fil-A. Steve, please introduce yourself and welcome to the show. Well, thank you, April and Ann. Uh, Treat to be with you. Uh, real, real quick, I grew up in South Alabama. I met Diane, my wife, on a blind date at Auburn University. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, in fact, next week, we, uh, no, this week, we celebrate 50 years of marriage. Oh, oh congratulations. That is a big congratulations. Yeah. Um, we graduated um, one day, and four days later, we got married and oh, headed off to uh, grad school at Northwestern. Awesome. My first job was was with Texas Instruments and the semiconductor group, specifically helping them market the newfangled calculators that they had rolled out, scientific calculators. Whoa. (laughs) uh, You know, look at them today and you'd laugh. I mean, our phones do more than those things did. Um, I was there about a year and I got recruited uh, by the brother of a Northwestern friend to be... uh, uh, become a part of uh, Six Flags uh, mm. in Texas. And I joined them. And the short of the story is I was with Six Flags for seven years, started there, had a gig at a new pro- a new project in Orlando for almost three years. But the majority of my seven years, I was director of marketing for Six Flags over Georgia. They're the ones who brought me to Atlanta. And during my tenure at the park, um, I met some of the leadership at Chick-fil-A uh, it was, by our initiative, we were trying to convince them to build uh, a Chick-fil-A restaurant in the park as a way to build their brand and create trial. And you may say, well, that seems odd. Well, this is uh, back in 1977 uh, and 70, 78 in that window, and Chick-fil-A was only in malls, mm-hmm. uh, mostly mm-hmm. southeastern states, less than 100 stores. 
So most people did not know Chick-fil-A. So anyway, we found a site, had a store design, and they decided they didn't want to do it because they would they wouldn't make any money inside the park. And of course, that was never our objective. Um, if anybody was going to make money, it was going to be the park. <laughs> <laughs> and, but it was designed to build their brand and create trial. Okay. About a year and a half later, uh, one of the guys I met, who was the COO, Jimmy Collins, calls me in the summer, August of 1980. Um, ironically, two days after Diane and I had made a significant pledge to a capital program at our church, uh, where our kids were also in school. Hmm. And he said, uh, we don't have a marketing department. Uh, your name keeps coming up in our search. Would you have an interest in talking to us? Um, well, I have to tell you, April and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, <clears throat> I know you don't have a marketing department or you would have done that deal with me. <laughs> but touché, uh, touché. I, I, I tried, I didn't bring that up. Um, and he basically said, uh, we don't have a department and we need somebody to come in here and design and build one. Uh, our operators are experiencing more competition and we need to resource them on how to build their sales. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was thinking very transactional, you know, how do you build transactional sales? And, and I was sitting in an office where we had really been focused on building the Chick-fil-A, I mean, the Six Flags brand yep. around particularly the family experience. Our theme was hug your kids the Six Flags way. Uh, had really engineered the guest experience to go beyond just rides and, and, and really create engagement with the guests and the guests with their families. So anyway, um, they were privately owned. Six Flags was publicly owned, and we were going through some really uh, disturbing transitions with a new owner, um, a, a subsidiary of PENCO, which came out of the Penn Central reorganization. So the short of it is I told him, sure, I, I'd love to talk. I figured, uh, you know, two or three days, I got, I got nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. I'd, interviewed, I'd interviewed with Six Flags out in Dallas for one full Saturday, and they offered me the job. I'll skip ahead, uh, and then I'll pause so you can ask some questions. Uh, five months later, I'm sitting in Truett Cathy's office, who was the founder of Chick-fil-A. I'm still interviewing. <laughs> and, and I'm doing it still because I love my job at Six Flags. And it was it was becoming a little difficult because I'm I'm literally having to work around schedules to, to meet all kinds of people at, at Chick-fil-A. And and now I'm starting to meet people more than once. Yep. Including Truett. And I'm sitting in his office uh, now in early December, and I said, Truett, um, I really love what you're doing here. I love your, your culture, your values. I love your product. I really think I could help you, but what are you looking for in the ideal marketing candidate? And mm -hmm. am I your guy? Yep. And there was this long pause. Truett, we were eating a sandwich. He puts his down. He says, I have absolutely no idea. All I know is whatever it is, I don't want to do it. <laughs> Ringing endorsement. I, yes. I am trusting Jimmy and others to figure out if you can do the job. I'm more concerned about who you are. 
<laughs> because if we invite you here, it's my intention that you'll never go anywhere else. Mm. Now, ladies, I've already had four jobs in eight years. And uh, Six Flags was a very mobile company. And I'm thinking, he's got to be kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, if you come here, it's because we know that we can not only trust you to do the job, but we can trust you, your character. And by the way, we can have fun together. Mm-hmm. Um, because if, if we invite you to be part of this organization, uh, we want to be able to trust you impeccably so you can do your job. And I have no interest in looking over your shoulder. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Two weeks later, they offered me the job and I joined them in January. Um, I think January 12th, 1981. Hmm. Uh, they had roughly 140 stores. Sales were about less than 100 million. They're pr- primarily in nine southeastern states. And I walked into my office, which was in a, um, a trailer attached to the Butler Building Home Office, <laughs> which also served as a warehouse. And uh, I not only had a clean desk, I had a clean sheet of paper. And that's how my, that's how I ended up there. Um, I had um, a, a tremendous experience with Six Flags, learned a lot, had good mentors. Uh, but what I, what I was about to experience at, at Chick-fil-A far exceeded anything I could have imagined. And as you well know, I was there in that role almost 35 years. Jeez, uh, you didn't go anywhere else. He was I right. I didn't. And uh, didn't want to. Um, I had Truett lived up to his word when he said, I don't want to do it. He, I, I tell people and they think I'm making it up, but I, I, I'm not. Truett never called me up to his office one time to say, why did you do that? Or I don't agree with that. Mm. Now, there were times I made some mistakes and I discussed that in my book. Yep. Um, but he never did anything to undermine my confidence that he had in me and um it it fostered not just with me but certainly with my department but also as you might guess it it filters through the entire organization it fostered a very uh innovative uh, adventurous fun uh, risk-taking environment that's amazing and it led to an environment where um, ultimately marketing became a brand management department. And uh, we were involved in, by the time I left, marketing was either directing or influencing every customer touch point in the business. Well, and that is why you are the perfect man for this episode. So <laughs> well, that, that's, a, that's a not a very short, but it is a high flyby of, Roughly 43 years, um, <laughs> and uh, Diane and I are still having fun. I'm consulting now and speaking, but uh, Chick-fil-A was a great experience. Awesome. Well, we're very happy to have you, and I think everyone who's listening now understands not just why we have 
the Chick-fil-A brand in the room, but also Steve with all of his relevant background. So with that, we'll get into what happens when brand truly leads business. And the first point you've already preempted, which is great a little bit, Steve, and that is there's truly an emotional foundation by which to build brand. And you mentioned Truett Cathy already. And, you know, I read a good portion of of the book and um, knew a lot about the brand anyway, right? Because it's one of the ones we hold up as a prime example Mm -hmm. of really, really embracing brand and making it the decision-making lens by which you do everything for your business. And Mm -hmm. I think it was amazing to see some of the behind the scenes in that book of, you know, the fact that he was really about more things in life than numbers and dollars. Of course, he wanted to run a business and make money, right? But that wasn't it. It was about modeling true grace for his employees. Um, I think some of the references were around just like the the easy stuff, right? Smiling, making eye contact, making personal connections and genuinely taking interest in, I think to your point, really respecting his people. And so letting them do the job that they needed to do. And his gifts. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is what we would really call starting from the top, right? So you had Mm -hmm. someone that really was going to do that for you. And whether it's a single founder or a board or a C-suite, it has to come authentically from whoever the leader is. And it has to be a true belief that this is the way that you want to build your business. And then that allows everyone else to lean in. And to some of the points you made, Steve, really gives them that ability to do their job the best way they can while being themselves as part of this bigger brand, which is much more impactful and emotional than just, in this case, selling chicken sandwiches. And in April, I would tell you that uh, what you just said is a very good summary of what made Chick- uh, Chick-fil-A different. Still does. It's still family-owned, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um but I would tell you, I was there almost two years before I really started to get it. And the the milestone event, which I discuss in great detail in my book, was in 1982, when the United States had a major financial crisis, um, uh, quite frankly, worse than even what we're, we're dealing with right now here. Uh, interest rates got up around 17, 18%. Shoo. Um, as a result, Mall development literally stopped, and projects that coming that were coming out of the ground stopped. The two years previous to that, we'd open roughly fifty stores per year. We were going to try to do that again in 1982. Uh, it became clear that was not going to happen. The bigger issue was that retail sales dove uh, over thirty percent drop. Mm. Well, here we are in malls, so our sales dropped something like 35%. And suddenly, for the first time, um, and it, you know, first time in the history of Chick-fil-A, which, which sure started in 1967, we have a cash flow problem. Yep. And he comes to our executive team. We're all young bucks. Most of us have been hired within the last three years, with the, with the exception of Jimmy. Um. And the committee also included his two sons, Dan Cathy and Bubba Cathy. And Truett came in one day in a meeting. He said, guys, uh, we got a serious cash flow problem. I've signed a $10 million note to build uh, an office building, and all my own personal assets are on, on that note. What are you going to do about it? Hmm. We just <laughs> we sit there looking at each other because – for the most part, everything's kind of out of our control. Yep. Well, to shorten the story, we said, all right, let's let us get offline and 
we'd like for you to come with us and we will dedicate two to three days to figure out what we can do. We go to a meeting facility in Lake Lanier, north of Atlanta, huddle up in a room, really no, no bigger than a typical hotel room. And we start doing what most businesses would do. We, we cut store growth. We froze salaries. Uh, executives actually took a pay cut. Uh, let's see what else we did. We, we cut budgets. Uh, in fact, one of the things we, the only thing we didn't cut, we were scheduled in marketing rollout that year, the next year, uh, this new little product called Chick-fil-A nuggets. Um, we <laughs> left that in the plan. Praise God. Thank goodness. Yeah. Right? Good thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, within, you know, within two thirds of the first day, we've done about all we can do in a traditional cash flow management basis, looking at each other. And Truett's oldest son, Dan Cathy, who's now chairman, um, you know, he, he looked at the group. He said, you know, over half the Chick-fil-A operators and our staff have joined us in the last two years. I'm not sure they all know how we're looking at these issues and what's really important. Mm. Well, in a way, he was also describing some of us. Yep. And uh, he said, maybe we need to spend a little talk time discussing among ourselves, particularly with dad here. Why, why are we in business? Mm. And that led to a discussion that went on for another day and a half, almost two days, where we discuss why does Chick-fil-A exist? Predominantly listening to why Truett gets up in the morning and goes to work. Mm-hmm. And the essence of what we heard, uh, ladies, was him saying, look, I, I look at Chick-fil-A as a gift. Um, I've been through other crises. I've had two major health crises. I've had a restaurant burn. I had another restaurant that didn't work. I've served in the war. Uh, I, crisis is not a new thing to me. But how I look at this situation is I feel like Chick-fil-A, the sandwich in the business, is a gift from God. And given that Christ is a gift to me as my Savior, I want to steward this gift well. Um, So coming eight years of being in public companies, I'm getting a crash course 101 in Chick-fil-A culture. Mm -hmm, Mm Mm-hmm. Hundred percent, a little jarring, right? Percent, and I'll speed up the story to say that we started throwing words up on the wall on paper about why we exist, and the net of what came out of it was to honor Truett's desire to be a great steward of the gift. Was these this phrase, these words, to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us. And to have a positive influence on all who come in contact with mm. And that would be the brand message <laughs> that yes, we're talking without, about here, without, right? Without saying it. Yep. He uh, was not motivated by wealth. Uh, profitability is the lifeblood of a business. We cannot operate and not be profitable. Sure. But I'm not interested in how much wealth I build. I'm not interested in growing fast. I want to be a great steward of this business and the people we attract to it. And that's, that was the filter that led to the, the purpose I just quoted to you. 
that filter is that purpose is still the purpose of Chick-fil-A, word for word. Not one word has been cha- changed. It's on a bronze plaque outside of that first building that he borrowed $10 million to build. Everybody goes by it when they go in the building every day. Hopefully, they're going back to it now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> once we nailed down purpose, then we kind of cleaned up the plan for 1983, went back and said, look, let's think and pray about this and we'll get back together when we get home. Two weeks later, we announced the plan, but we announced the purpose. And April and Ann, I, my, my sense was when we unpacked the purpose, it was by far more impactful than when we unpacked the plan. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, there was this sense of relief, sense of motivation, a transferable sense of purpose that people identified with. Uh, we made it very clear this doesn't have to be your purpose. It doesn't even have to be the purpose of the operators running the stores, but this is the purpose of the home office and what Truett desires the brand to represent. Uh, we implemented, pe- people just went to work. And we implemented that plan. 1983 was still a very difficult year in the economy, but we had a uh, 36% sales increase. Same store sales went up 29% because we, we only opened 18 new mall stores. And uh, we we came out of the cash flow crunch, as, as you might, might guess. Uh, Chick-fil-A has not had a sales decline since that 1982 crisis. Um, so I tell you that long story because it is literally the, the cornerstone of that business, its culture, and, and what the family who owns it desires the brand to represent. And you won't see those words in advertising and you won't see them plastered in the restaurants. Uh, the desire is, as it said, is to be a great steward of talent, people, money, and to have a positive influence in all, on all who come in contact with the brand, which obviously is a major litmus test of what we put in front of the customer in all fr- at all fronts, food, service, communications, events. That's when I really understood Chick-fil-A and uh, had a great deal of influence on me designing, desiring to have a long career there uh, because it was not only an environment where Truett was empowering me and my team, but it was an environment that I personally, Diane and I personally identified with in terms of what was important to us. It, the business over time became a platform of ministry, not just for Truett and the, and the, the people in the uh, Chick-fil-A, I mean, the Kathy family, but it became a platform of ministry for, for us and our marriage. So um, there you go. Now, I mean, I think that's a, a fantastic story that exemplifies a lot of the things that we talk about all the time. So for everybody who's like, when we talk about vigilant leadership and we talk about hiring for aptitude and we talk about purpose and building culture, I mean, you just told a very beautiful story that weaves all those things together and really then exemplifies through the impact what can happen when you do those things. And I think, you know, just to put a fine point on the word purpose, because, I mean, that word comes up a lot. And I think that a lot of people and a lot of businesses don't spend enough time to really 
figure out what that actually means for them so that they can feel it and they can actually implement it through every single part of the business. And that was what I think you guys did so beautifully. Like it was in the hiring, you were hiring for character. You, It was in the way that you operated on a day in and day out basis. It was translated into the store. So, this, so the employees knew whatever you do, we're going to have a positive influence on all of the people that we actually come in contact or that come in contact with us. And that is lived through every single part of the marketing, every single part of the touch points in the restaurant. And it's the only, I mean, personally, and I'm going to say a little something, a little bit blasphemous here, but it's the only explanation for how something that's like as simple as a chicken sandwich can be have such a cult following. It's the only explanation. It's because mm-hmm. yeah. the culture yeah. transcends every right. single element of the people, the the building, the you know, and the um, the franchises, and you know, and all of the stores. No matter where it's at, right? So everybody gets it. Everybody knows it inside and out. Well, Ann, uh, let me let me build on that a little bit. Um, I do consulting now. I do quite a bit of speaking. Uh, I was involved in the marketing roundtable at Georgia State for over 30 years. So I've had an opportunity to interface with a lot of businesses, a lot of CMOs. And what you said is absolutely true. My experience is um, most leaders do not spend enough time on why they exist as a business. Yes, 100% Um, into that. Yep. They don't nail down the clarity of that. As a result, they don't, they don't, it doesn't involve. that itself and every it ought to infect strategic thinking and planning it ought to affect behavior it ought to affect day-to-day decision making and and at the top it ought to affect how a leader a key leader in a business spends their time yeah what they talk about the story the words they use uh, I just told you the story. I've told that story hundreds of times. Yep. And I've told it probably hundreds of times within the Chick-fil-A family. People need to hear, hear the crucial cultural building blocks of a company. They need to hear it over and over, and they need to hear it from their leaders. And then they need to see their leaders, leaders making decisions that reflect they really believe it. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I saw that in Truett, and I saw that in Jimmy, and I saw it in the Kathy family, and it's still there. And Truett, in fact, used to say, I wasn't smart enough to come up with this simple chicken sandwich. He said, you know, all it is is a piece of chicken. Initially, it was on white bread with two pickles. (laughs) He He had no idea that, quite frankly, God would honor his desire for being a great steward of the gift and, and create something that, you, as you properly said, Ann, is a lot bigger than a chicken sandwich. And in the process, building a brand that not only customers love, but has created thousands of jobs and thousands of careers for people to thrive in their own giftedness and, and take care of their families and foster ministry in communities that Chick-fil-A serves. The unique thing is this all started with a guy who invented that chicken sandwich 21 years after he'd been running the same diner Mm -hmm. in Hapeville, Georgia. Um, So he's, and he's almost 60 when he hired me. (laughs) (laughs) He's not thinking about retirement. Um, 
he was motivated as the business grew. He was highly motivated to attract great talent and give people an opportunity to, to thrive in their own giftedness. I don't know any other way to describe it. Um, you, if you haven't studied the operator model, um, and your listeners, have, if they wonder what, what is the key to Chick-fil-A, it's not the sandwich. It's the, it's the culture, but it's also the Chick-fil-A operator model, the, the men and women who run the stores. He designed a model that attracted entrepreneurs. The culture helped to filter out people who had similar values. And these men and women make those businesses hum. Well, and I think that's a really good point, and it leads nicely to our second point here, which is brand legacies built alongside building revenue. And I think a lot of times in this conversation with our clients and just others in general that run businesses, right, you think numbers and you have to. You've said it already, Steve, Mm -hmm. right? It's a business. You got to make money. You got to be profitable. Sure. But it can't be the sole focus, nor should it be the main focus of things. And so I think one of the things that you've hit on is the fact that Truett really embraced the long game and this sort of essence of what we we kind of described as grace, right? Like when I read the book, that was just the thing that kept coming back to me was just that's the way that he lived his life. And so when we talk about brand leading business, first of all, like I said, there's just too many companies that focus on the bottom line. And then when things aren't going the way they should, they make some really short-term decisions that might eventually do more harm than good. Having a brand as the lens really eliminates this because it builds that confidence. Like you said, you know, you unpack the purpose. It was so much more impactful than the plan itself. And there was a sense of relief with that because now you knew why you were there. And so when you flip the perspective to be brand first, this is where you build things like loyalty and longevity. Mm -hmm and that authentic experience that you've been talking about for the customers. And then the numbers come and then thereby they're more impressive because you didn't start from the limited perspective of we just want to make money. Um, And so I think the intentional scale is really interesting. I mean, I, you know, part of of the story I know is that Truett, while you mentioned the $10 million building uh, borrowed loan overall, I feel like one of the things he did was not just about making money, but about diligently borrowing as little as possible and really maintaining the appropriate peace of mind and thinking about, you said, you know, the slow business growth, not having to do it all at one time. And so with the compass of brand to guide you, you know, we talk about this as a, as a company at fourth rate people. We're built on the very foundation of doing the right thing on behalf of our client by being direct, but never disrespectful in our approach and making sure that we are honoring their business goals and what they're trying to achieve. And we vet clients this way too, right? So we, you know, you mentioned the point about bringing the right people to Chick-fil-A. We think the same way. It's like, we don't take on a client that's not interested in doing what's right for their business because that fundamentally goes against who we are. So all of those things are part of really getting to a brand legacy over time, which obviously you can talk about forever with Chick-fil-A, right, Steve? Yep. Well, I had a few things race, few things race through my mind as my mind as you said that. Um, over time, we started uh, um, really focusing on okay, as you get bigger, how do you maintain maintain consistency in the kind of talent you attract? Yep. And trust me, trust me in this. Uh, this is not a, an issue of any creating any sort of discrimination possibility. Quite frankly, just the opposite. Um, and the best way I can summarize it was we learned how to identify competency. Mm-hmm. People were very gifted at their skill. Mm-hmm. And most organizations tend to stop there. Yep. 
But we also identified two other things. We, we, and you say, well, how do you do that? Well, we didn't just talk about it. We studied the best operators. We studied some of the best staff, and we identified two other common characteristics. They not only have great competency, they have great character. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have integrity. They have honesty. They have uh, the natural ability uh, to, uh, to, to exercise judgment and wisdom without having to be told what to do or somebody holding their hand. Yep. Uh, and they make good judgment calls in the context of the purpose of the business and the strategies of the business. Second, third is they have great chemistry. Mm. Uh, quality attracts quality. They attract other great talent. They, they build teams. They empower teams. Um, so what I, I learned during my career was the bottom line is if you attract people that are very strong in those three attributes, you can release them, you can empower them, make sure they have the right strategy and the money they need, the resources they need, but then leave them alone. Mm-hmm. And that's the same principle the operator. Chick-fil-A finds the store, they build the store, they equip it, but then the operator is empowered to operate it inside the context of the Chick-fil-A brand, but they can exercise their own energy, their own creative talents of and attracting and developing people, building relationships in the community, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, because Truett was, as you said, focused on the long haul, uh, it meant we didn't fall into the trap. We didn't have to fall into the trap of chasing transactions as opposed to building relationships with customers. Um, most companies, particularly public companies, are focused on quarterly returns and it's very hard in an environment like that not to focus on transactions. Yep. But but Truett was not, um, as long as we were cash flow, financially healthy, he wasn't worried about, the, you know, hitting a precise number every quarter. It wasn't important to him. And um, the, the quite frankly, the biggest number we paid attention to was operator income growth. Because we knew if we could manage costs, we could help equip them to build sales, and we could price accordingly, then we could help operators grow their income every year because they had a natural incentive to go out and build relationships and build their sales. And uh, my last my last six or seven years there, we never had a year where same-store sales was less than 5%. And my last year, same-store sales was 11%. And they've, they've had double-digit same-store sales growth ever since I left. Obviously, they're not missing me. <laughs> um, but my, my point is this. You have leadership in the restaurants who are focused on doing the right thing every day, all the time, and they are in the restaurants. They're attracting talent. They're coaching talent. They're paying attention to the kind of experience guests are getting each day. Uh, And then as a result of the long-term focus on building relationships, saying my pleasure, smiling, looking people in the eye, building relationships in the community, making people laugh with the cows, et cetera. (laughs) Uh, Chick-fil-A has enjoyed the ability to grow this this base of millions and millions of, of brand advocates. People love the brand. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so now they're the ones that are primarily driving this double digit sales growth. 
It's not coming out of the Atlanta marketing department. It's not operators doing pricing and coupon deals. They're not doing any of that. It's operators giving people a great experience, treating them like they actually are glad they're there, building relationships and serving people and organizations in their community. And these millions of Chick-fil-A fans are out building the sales form every day. And it's like the flywheel that Peters, Tom Peters talks about. The operators and Chick-fil-A fans are just, they're just spinning that flywheel faster and faster every day. And Chick-fil-A's biggest challenge now is one, building bigger stores and two, building more of them. Yep. Mm-hmm. Nice problem to have, but it's all about the power of the brand. Now I would tell you the first half, probably about the first half of my career there, when I would talk about people, brand people would look at me cross-sided. <laughs> I mean, to, to them, brand was marketing. And so part of the challenge for me, and I would suspect this is true for any leaders who are really committed to making the brand the central hub of growth, is you have to educate your people on what do you mean by brand. thousand percent. And, mm-hmm. and, for us, and for us, we settle on a simple definition, a promise people can trust. Mm. And it wasn't the corporate purpose, even though that's the foundation for it. The promise people could, people could trust was great food, caring environment, quick service by people who really care. That's a, that's a promise we wanted to try to deliver every day. They're still focused on that. And when you, when you give people that kind of, uh, experience in the fast food industry, <laughs> you stand out pretty quick. True. And that's that's the evolution of the brand. Their, their, their brand focus hasn't changed. It's about delivering a promise people can trust. They can trust the food. They can trust the service. They can trust the people. They can trust the, the cleanliness. They can trust the experience. They can trust the fact that they're going to be retreat, treated with honor and respect. So what do they do? They keep coming back and they keep telling others about their experience. They're perfectly willing to pay full price. Yeah, we talk about that a lot with regards to brand and how when you really embrace brand, it builds that tangible value that allows you to command higher prices or full price to your point, or it allows you to advocacy, um, build more customers, generate more impact. And, you know, I, I think what you're saying is 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 truly gold, Steve. And I'm going to go back to a couple of things that you said, because I know a lot of people are probably listening who have businesses who aren't family oriented or not in that family operated, um, to be exact, in that they're like, oh, it's it's easy for them, right? They mm-hmm. can make these decisions. They don't have shareholders that in, in stock, you know, that they have to really keep a, a, a mindset on day in and day out. But what you say, though, is not just with regards to family-oriented business or family-owned businesses. Not at all. Because it, it's that whole mentality of how do you generate scale yep. and that's consistency. And I like the mentality of thinking like a family-owned business when you do that. Because yes. things like 
what you we in April call vigilant leadership, but it's that articulation of, hey, you establish a culture, you get the right people in order to operate that culture. They have to have certain skills in order to be able to operate, and we get that. But when you have the right people, you have the right defined roles, you build the right culture, you can leave them alone and that you can let them do their thing. That's how you get scale and that's how you generate consistency. But but back to the original point that you had made before, if you don't understand your purpose, if you don't understand the emotional integrity of why you're all there, there's nothing to build that consistency from. It becomes a very haphazard kind of like pie in the sky, everybody interprets it their own way kind of thing. And even though you do provide flexibility to allow people to really embrace it how they want to embrace it, there's still that expectation and mentality of we're going to have a positive impact. You can decide how that looks, but that is at the end of the day what our expectation is. And that's how you generate scale and you generate that consistency across scale that lets you grow. And again, I mean, yes, you're a family owned and operated business, but when you take that mentality and you apply it to businesses that aren't, it still works. It still transcends. Are you craving a deeper dive immersion into the topics on our podcast? Then you will appreciate our virtual consultancy. Located on the shop page of our website, forthright-people.com, you can now download our digital coaching modules on vigilant leadership, culture building, and social strategy. For the cost of a book, you will get diagnostic tools and exercises to assess your current state and development tools to quickly and intentionally improve your proficiency. These are quick yet effective ways to improve your marketing savvy today. Check it out and let us know other topics you would like us to go deep on. We, we didn't just, you know, stumble into the, the brand focus. And I mentioned I, I better part of half my career, people were actually pushing back. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things we did um, was myself and a few of my key leaders, and I, and, and I engaged Dan Cathy in this, because I knew he was going to follow through it was we started studying other businesses that had great brands and they were not all privately owned. Most of them were not. We, we literally went to Apple stores and we visited the Apple campus. We uh, went to Nike stores. We visited the Nike campus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We went to Southwest airlines. We went to Nordstrom's. We went to Zappos. Um, major predominantly customer facing business, USAA insurance, um, major customer facing businesses that have a great brand perception. And what we discovered was even if they were family owned, most of whom were not, they had a family culture. Yep. Mm -hmm. They created an environment where everybody bought into why the business existed, and this this is not we're not just saying family because it's it's warm and fuzzy. We're because we all have a we all have a built-in self-interest in serving our constituents well through this brand, because at the end of the day we will win, and we will win bigger than if we just out here trying to chase transactions and meet quarterly earnings. Yep, that was a common theme at every business I just mentioned. And um, that's really where we started. We, you know, we saw a lot of great ideas and, and principles. And when we visited these businesses and talked to their leaders, right? enterprise leasing was another one sitting across the table from 
Andy, Andy Taylor with Enterprise. If you want a great brand, get clear about your purpose and then get clear about why everyone around, everybody in that brand family should care about it. Mm-hmm. And if they, can, if they can embrace the purpose and understand that the, the brand is, is literally the icon of, of, of why the promise that they, they, the promise they're offering to the marketplace, then we've all got to be focused on delivering this, delivering that brand promise and, and everything we do, every touch point, every product, every service, every marketing campaign. And so you look at an Apple, their, their brand promise is simplicity. For example, yep, it's been that for years. Everybody there knows it. Their whole family there is focused on simplicity, using technology to make lives simpler. Nike. Everybody has an athlete in them. That's their brand focus. Mm-hmm. Everybody's an athlete. Yep. Everybody there is creating products and resources and marketing that reinforces. You're not Michael Jordan, but by golly, you can play with the same kind of equipment. <laughs> you can feel like Michael Jordan, yeah. at least. You can feel like Michael Jordan, you know, and you might even, to some degree, look like Michael Jordan. <laughs> so um, these businesses are, they're no different in that regard uh, to Chick-fil-A. Yep. Um, now, we certainly have the advantage of being privately owned by a man who lived his faith walk integrated a lot of biblical principles into his business. I mean, you mentioned one, he hated debt. He didn't, he just didn't want to owe anybody any money. Mm-hmm. And for a long time we did, but he asked us to get out of debt. And the, sh- the short of the story is over several years, we did. He ties the business. The family still ties the business. Um, but I was pretty clear about how, God honors tithing. It, it it represents good stewardship. He mm-hmm. was simple principles like that, treating people with honor, respect. And it wasn't complicated to him. Probably there, there weren't a lot of there weren't a lot of books that sure Kathy read. He wasn't a bookworm, but he read the Bible every day. Mm-hmm. And it affected how he thought and it affected how he made decisions. Uh, and it, but without Without getting on a soapbox, <laughs> that wasn't his style. He he wasn't he wasn't out there beating on the Bible, telling people what they ought to be doing. He just tried to live it out. Well, and I think that leads nicely to our third point here around that whole side of building from emotion and something you really believe in. And you talked about why Truett gets up in the morning and, you know, his faith and everything he believed. The third point we have here is brand fuels customer acquisition by giving the audience the ability to identify on that very emotional level. And you mentioned already, Steve, you know, there's nothing like word of mouth and loyal fans. When people start talking on your behalf, you've made it. And it only happens if you mm-hmm. start from the foundation we've been talking about, about brand, that brand foundation or purpose, which is the word you've been using. And when you have that proper foundation built and you can lead from that place, 
That's when you start to see your business take off at a scale that cannot be obtained by things like chasing numbers or quick wins or knee-jerk decisions or those types of things. And in our business, we really live what we preach, quite frankly. So we've been at Fourth Rate People. We're not a giant brand, so we can attest to the other side of this that we're, we're following the lead and doing the right things. But we've been very patiently cultivating our brand for a little over two years now. And we're seeing our business take off in a way that can only be explained in our minds as on that focus of brand. We don't get distracted by shiny work. We don't get distracted by a quick buck. We don't take clients for the sake of taking clients. It's about those authentic relationships, which you've talked at length about this, Steve, where people keep coming back and they help continue to foster our brand, which allows it to mature. And then the business grows as a result of that. But it all works very much together. And I think, you know, the point you were making before about, Looking outside of yourself, figuring out what that purpose really is, learning from other companies, really getting a lay of the land, that helps you become better and stronger because you're identifying with folks that think the same way you do. And not only are you recruiting them to work for you, but then ultimately that end consumer is recruited and recruits more on your behalf. That's right. Yeah. And you, what you've just said actually um, um, reminds me to share a few illustrations that would reinforce that um this also filters into your non-staff your vendors your suppliers yes Mm um we were they and they still are we were very transparent with our vendors we had an annual convention uh just for our suppliers and our partners and we were always transparent about reinforcing our purpose the strategic priority in the business for the next 18 to 24 months, uh, what's going on in the business, what are the issues we're facing, what are the challenges, what are the opportunities, here's the things you could help us solve. And they, they would come around those things because so many of them identified with the culture and the values of Chick-fil-A. They wanted us to be successful. We mm-hmm. weren't just another piece of business to them. I think another example of what you're saying is um, creating, and so there's a form of emotional connection right there. Uh, another one was how do you create emotional connections with people who have not been in your Chick-fil-A restaurant yet? That's, that's what led to why we hired the Richards Group in Dallas to do advertising. And Stan Richards had a very simple principle, and it's one of the big reasons we hired him. He said, if people love your advertising, they'll love your business. <laughs> um, and we said, great let's see you create some advertising that people love because right now there's not a lot of that in the fast food business. Everybody, <laughs> Very everybody true. Everybody show them deals, price, and, and ironically, they still are. Um, and he said, okay, give us a little time. And we didn't have a lot of money. And you know the story. We, we had to start with billboards. That's all we could afford. Yep. But it was that focus on creating an emotional connection, which for us, we told him, Go with humor. We don't want to do anything to try to create emotional connection that in any way could come off as arrogant mm. or, or self-aggrandizing. Yep. So we'd rather, we'd rather entertain people and have them scratching their head. You know, I don't know that I've ever seen a fast food company that actually is concerned with making me smile. Mm-hmm. And that's what led to the cat campaign. <laughs> Just make people laugh. Don't show them product. Don't show them price. You can show them, I can put any chicken sandwich 
up on a billboard and a TV commercial and you could change the logos and they all look the same. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. But you're not going to forget a cow out there hustling, eating more chicken. (laughs) And spelling it wrong along the way. Yeah. And spelling it wrong and dribbling paint all over the place. That's exactly right. And so that Stan got it. He helped us really get, okay, how do we create these emotional connections outside the four walls of the Chick-fil-A restaurant? He broke the code on that. And I was fortunate to be associated with that campaign for 22 years. It's also why we did a deal with um, the SEC and the ACC and the Big 12 and other college football conferences and ultimately with CBS and ESPN and then after 20 years college football playoff because fans love their teams. Yep. And we wanted to be emotionally connected with their love and their passion for the game and their teams. It led to us doing licensing, restaurant licensing deals, engaging our operators. When I left on over 350 college campuses where we're selling Chick-fil-A food. Mm -hmm. We have promotional relationships through the operators, not through the home office, with over 500 university athletic departments. And that all started with one deal to be the Chick-fil-A sponsor of the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl. <laughs> so, but it was all the same strategy. How do we emotionally engage? We can't, we can't do it with everybody, but how can we engage with an audience that fits our demographic, fits the lifestyle that, that can afford our product? And we can go deep on creating not only experiences through media, but experiences at events, on campuses, in stadiums, etc. So for most of my last 20 years, our marketing focus um, outside of how we equipped the operators was on basically two things. How do we leverage the cow campaign? And how do we leverage college football? Mm. (laughs) But they were all rooted in creating emotional engagement. And so we we don't have a corner on that. Any brand, if they can crack the code, can try to do that uh, and mean something more to people than just another widget. And I think that is gold. And I hope everybody listens to that and rewinds and listens to that again, because that's what I was going to highlight. And you said the word, and I'm going to say it again, which is experience, you know, and that is the core of being able to emotionally connect. And that doesn't matter if you're selling a chicken sandwich. It doesn't matter if you're selling a sexy sports car. It doesn't matter if you're selling any widget. It doesn't matter if you're B2C or B2B. It's all about what kind of experience do you want that person on the other side to have and what are you going to cultivate so that that experience is emotionally connected back to you, whether you're using humor in order to make people feel good or whatever that happens to be for you. That continues to be the basis by which then you make decisions that actually creates the growth and the scale that you're looking for. And I think the other thing that you guys have done so well is that you don't just sit and rest on your laurels and that, oh, we got it and you know we're done now. It's like there's a constant reinvention. Constant. I mean, and even to like such a what seems very obvious, but nobody else has done it. It's like, Oh, we have a lot of traffic for drive through Oh, I know. Let's have two drive throughs I mean, <laughs> nobody does that. But then it's like, oh, it takes too long for people to try to order and then like get it to the window. Oh, let's have people outside 
you know, no matter if it's rain or shine, actually taking people's order and making sure we facilitate that order. Oh, we can, you know, don't have enough people um, to actually do that. We can actually go quicker. Let's put two people out there. It's like a constant state of reinvention in order to have that impact from everything right. you do in store from the menu, like being able to evolve the menu, but then also like having the in-store like play sets for kids to play on, you know, so that people and adults can actually maybe enjoy their meals instead of just like shoving right. them down, right. you know, and then because it's family oriented, it's a family experience. So the family experience means we're going to be here as a family for a little bit. Let's enjoy it. And, you know, and then, I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't even if I didn't remark about the cow campaign, which is so clever in the fact that it it, it totally like lands in the fact that you guys sell chicken sandwiches, not burgers. Right. And it's not like you said, hey, well, all these other people play, you know, sell burgers. So we should probably sell a burger, too. It's like that's never even been I mean, from the outward standing in, you could tell me if it's different, not even been a consideration that maybe we should sell burgers. It's like, no, we sell chicken sandwiches. We're going to do it the best way possible. And we're going to use humor as a way to kind of facilitate that cultural building, that experience building that allows us to have that word of mouth, which then fuels the advocacy that we're looking for. Right. That's right. Um, well, let me speak to the point about continuous improvement. <clears throat> what fuels continuous improvement? First of all, context of why you exist. Secondly, the context of what's your brand promise, a promise that people can trust. But the primary driver of continuous improvement is customer research. Mm -hmm, Listening mm -hmm. to customers interviewing them in the stores, focus groups, uh, internet surveys, phone surveys, leadership, i.e. even executive committee, being out in restaurants and wandering around and talking to customers and talking to the operators. There was nothing done to the Chick-fil-A brand in terms of the experience in my 30 plus years that wasn't uh, in many instances initiated um, by customer insight and certainly nothing that ultimately reached the Chick-fil-A customer that wasn't tested and proven through customer research. Um, even led to us building what we call the hatch and the kitchen, which are two gigantic, um, uh, what amounts to innovation centers. One's focused on food, the other one's focused on everything else. I mean, literally the drive-through experience you described we engineered that and we designed that in the hatch with two prototype restaurants and we got everybody involved in it that needs to touch that project operations equipment technology store design marketing communications they're in about the fourth or fifth iteration of that drive-through model but that is an inclusive infrastructure to deliver that experience but it, it grew from listening to customers. You're, you know, you got a lot of cars in your line and we got to wait, you know, to get through by the, by the window. Well, how do we crack the code on that? And, and quite frankly, having Chick-fil-A operators who are running these restaurants, they have the capacity to do a lot more and they are proving it mm -hmm. day, in out, day in and day out. Yep. And so whether it was it was the drive through model and all that that required, whether it was the hospitality second mile service model and all that required, they have caught those balls. They've caught those systems. They've attracted the right talent to run them. And they're delivering uh, the, 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 
the service, the model, the experience that was designed in that patch innovation center in every store across the country. And they're doing it consistently because one, they're great leaders and two, it was, it was designed in effect by customers. And, and I would, I would tell anyone over and over and over, I had the experience of, and it, over time, everybody figured it out. It didn't matter what Truett thought. Didn't matter what Jimmy thought about an idea. Quite frankly, it didn't matter what operators thought about an idea. We, over time, we built an organization where everybody understands that all that matters is what customers think about an idea. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, it didn't used to be that way. I mean, Truett could trump anything. He thought waffle fries were a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Truett, you have, didn't have all the have, answers. We have waffle fries at Chick-fil-A <laughs> because of the voice of the customer. Jimmy thought chicken, grilled chicken, he called it scorched chicken. He thought that was a bad <laughs> idea. They have grilled chicken because of the voice of the customer. And ultimately, the customer rewarding the fact that they have waffle fries and they have grilled chicken. But I can tell you story after story of things where the internal constituents are saying, I'm not sure about that. Mm-hmm. But the yep. voice of the customer drove design, drove innovation, ultimately drove how we built the infrastructure so that we were able to deliver something the customers valued. Any organization can do that. But if you're, if you're going to have, if innovation is relied upon leaders coming up with all the ideas or operational people coming up with all, all the ideas, you will not drive innovation that ultimately makes customers happy. Yeah, and I think this leads to really nicely into our fourth point, which is kind of the culmination of the conversation we've had today. And that is that the brand is your launch pad to top line growth. And a lot of what we have within this point is really about that constant feedback loop. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you just mentioned that. And I think the point is so, so important to hear. I mean, I feel like there's many things I could take and continue to repeat and beat the drum on from this episode. But I think too often people at the leadership level feel that since they're at that level, they should be the ones making all the decisions or coming up with all the ideas. And and I think that, you know, your point is so well taken. It's like, I can't imagine the grilled chicken sandwich, which is my favorite, and the waffle fries, which is my son's favorite, not being on the menu at Chick-fil-A, right? And so, and also making sure that it's constant from a feedback perspective because all the things you just mentioned that you were able to build, it's because you always had information coming in from the consumers and you were always seeking to understand and spend time with them and really listen to hear the problems or, you know, I mean, quote unquote problems or the desires that they had or the things that were going to enhance their experience overall. And so that's, I think, really that choiceful innovation. Let me just amplify on that. Somebody might be sitting out there saying, well, how do they do that? There is customer data coming into every store every quarter. Mm. It's coming in through in-store surveys. It's coming in through internet surveys. It's coming in through focus groups in those in those markets is coming in through customers just picking up the 800 number and calling and say, you know, I was a little disappointed at such and such that feedbacks back to that operator within eight hours. Mm, Hmm. That's amazing. And Mm -hmm. and this, all that information is not only coming to the home office, all that information by store is coming to the operator. Mm. They can self-correct. They can. In real time, real time. time. 
But the aggregate of that data then is used to drive innovation. And, and then innovation can be pre-tested through focus groups and taste panels and in-store testing with customer intercept studies. So you don't roll out anything before you know customers love it. Yep. And you actually have people focus explicitly on that through the hatch in the kitchen. Like that is their dozens, their job. Dozens and dozens. Mm. And they they actually manage those facilities and they manage the innovation process for anyone else in the Chick-fil-A organization, whether it's a, a, a design project, a store equipment, um, a workflow project, a menu project, an apparel project, a marketing advertising project. The same people provide the the process management system for what the whatever the innovation project we're all using the same roadmap for innovation yep and it starts and it finishes with voice of the customer and then in between is ideation development testing and then rollout Really very simple. But yes, we they have dozens of people in those facilities. That's all they do is facilitate innovation. And so somebody's got an idea can come to that group, put a team together, and that that group, the innovation group, will help facilitate the process. Now you might ask, why do we do that? Well, because very most work is not done in a in a silo. Most work is done across functions. So you gotta have somebody who can connect the hoses. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, secondly, it cut cycle time of innovation by almost 70%. So com- from idea to implementation, instead of a project taking two or three years, it's taking a year or less. And when you're trying to, to meet guest expectations and, and delight them with new ideas, three years is too long too long Mm -hmm. yep and um so that's part of the role of the home office is to to listen to the customer and then have innovation systems they get great ideas the marketplace as quickly as possible but not before we know they work yeah and i think what underpins all of this uh and that's really helped Chick-fil-A generate tremendous top-line growth is the fact that there is good listening going on no matter what level and what place you're at. And it almost seems like it's done, and I know that I'm probably glamorizing it a little bit and probably not understanding everything that's going on inside, but it's almost being done with a little bit of a lack of ego where it's like, it's expected that there is a feedback loop. It's expected that there's going to be changes. It's expected that, you know, there's going to be things that are not going so right. And that is all okay. And a lot of times people, I think in businesses don't want to listen because they don't want to either one, think that they did something wrong or something's going wrong with their business, or they don't want to have to do the extra work of changing things because there's new challenges or dealing with that and the emotional turmoil of having to to deal with something in your business. So they kind of tend to put a blind eye to what might be going on and till it's too late. And I think that is a, a really 
important thing to to take away from this is that if you want your business to grow, you need to be a good listener. And then you need to be able to quickly uh, basically distill that feedback and put it into action. And so it doesn't take two or three years to make a shift because your consumers or your customers or your clients minds, they're very quick. It's like an in or out kind of thing that happens in a blink of an eye. If you're going to take three years to adjust, that is just going to be way too long. And I, and I think the other point you made too, and April, you made this point about not always having to have as a leader, the, the right call or know what the right idea is. And I think a lot of the people that we, you know, a lot of our clients, they think that way. They're like, I am the leader. I'm supposed to have all the right answers. I'm supposed to be able to do it all. I have these smart people working for me. What is my role? You know, these smart people working for me, what do I have to offer them? And this is what I always said, and this is something that I've embraced, which is like, I don't always have the right ideas or the good ideas, but I know a good one when I hear it. And so if I was going to give anybody advice and, you know, about how to operate when, you know, you're in these environments and you're starting to feel a little like kind of nervous that maybe the people that work for you are maybe smarter than you are, quote unquote, um, because it becomes a a really big uh, lack of uh, security uh, question for a lot of folks is be the person that knows a good idea when they hear it then. And don't feel like you always have to have all the good ideas. Yeah. Well, let me touch on what a few points that you just made there. Put a little more meat on the bone. Uh, one of the reasons, or one of the ways you keep ego or arrogance out of the way is with the voice of the customer data. Um, mm-hmm. That's what creates accountability. Uh, so let's say an operator is having some major challenges in his or her business, uh, the regional consultant that might go in to try to help that operator is not going to go in there with with a hammer. They're going to go in there with the data from customers, the data from their P&Ls, and they're going to say, look, this is not an issue of what I think. This is an issue of what your customers think and what your P&Ls say are going on. Let me suggest to you how you get this back on track. Um, this is how you, this is an area operationally where you're under delivering the Chick-fil-A promise. We know how to do that. Let's figure out what part of that process you're not properly executing. So the customers get what they're expecting. Mm -hmm. Mm. Well, it takes the emotion out of it, right? It's It's not out of it. And the the staff member is not the heavy, and it's yep. not a issue of having to you know cozy up or build a relationship with a staff member to get favors or to to to, to have a, a lighter hand with that operator. No, the data is what it is, and when the when the lead data is customer data and not finance data, by the way, that's that's the accountability you want. Yes, yep, to, and and that I would tell you is what. Uh, as you get bigger and bigger, uh, you cannot let personalities or feelings, <laughs> feelings or heavy handedness or arrogance or any of that get in the way of people focused on delivering the customer promise. The best way to maintain the right focus is to have data systems that bring you back to what your brand promises. Yep. And that, that's voice of the customer systems. Chick-fil-A is spending millions of dollars every every year, every month on what I've just described to you so that there is voice of the customer data in every restaurant on a continuous basis. The operator, number one, is going to get better because of it. And number two, 
they can't hide. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I would say this has been an amazing, amazing conversation. We've covered tons and tons of points. Um, so quickly, I want to just recap the four points we made so everyone has kind of those key takeaways top of mind. So just to recap what happens when brand truly leads business. Number one, there's a truly emotional foundation by which to build brand. This is the most important jumping off point for a brand. You've heard us say this over and over and over again, that promise. It's just so imperative that you get it right with something that connects on a highly, highly emotional level with consumers. The second is brand legacy is built alongside building revenue. Chasing the dollar does not a strong brand make when it is the goal all on its own. The money will come when you work hard to identify that purpose and build your brand. Number three, brand fuels customer acquisition by giving the audience the ability to identify on an emotional level. This is when you know you got it right. And when others start speaking on your behalf, there is nothing better than that word of mouth and brand advocacy on the side of your customers. And finally, the brand is your launch pad to top line growth. Get to know your consumer and continue to know them better and better. We just had a conversation at length about that feedback loop and make sure making sure it's ongoing and you're acting accordingly. So that way you can grow within tension. And typically we do a segment next called In the Trenches, but we have covered so many points of conversation with so many wonderful examples from Steve and the history of Chick-fil-A and everything that he's experienced that I actually think we addressed all of those questions that we were going to discuss. So Steve, you did your job. You kept the conversation going and and answered answered all the questions in the process of it. So our third and final segment is typically where we have our guest we turn it over to you, Steve, and and just ask you to provide any words of wisdom. If you're open to folks reaching out, let them know where to find you and just kind of bring us home and put a fine point on a conversation. Get your new book. Make sure you oh, yeah, your and, new and, book. Yeah, exactly. Promote the book. Yeah. Well, we've referenced the book. The book is called Covert Cows and Chick-fil-A. Yep. How Faith, Chicken, and Cows Built an Iconic Brand. <laughs> Talk and about I simplifying it. I was going to say, if that's yeah, not a lead, right, I don't know what is. Pretty much, pretty much in that order. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's that's the title and subtitle of the book. It's on Amazon, uh, uh, other other locations. Bought book has them by the case. By the way, if you want a case of. <laughs> And I will say I will give a, I will also give an endorsement here. I, I yeah. found it super interesting. I mean, the richness of the story and the facts and the journey. I mean, it is a it's a good one for sure. Well, I've been very I spent about two years writing it. I've been very pleased with it. Um, been honored. It's it's been getting great reviews. Um, but I think it's a practical book, and uh, I spinning off of that, it's led me into doing a little consulting, not a lot. I kind of cherry pick clients. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do some speaking, uh, mostly for business meetings. I, people say you must do a lot for ministries. Quite frankly, no, I don't. Um, I feel like my ministry is to the corporate world, the mm-hmm. business world. And, uh, so I do speaking. Diane and I love to travel. So I'm spending more, more of my time with her and our kids. And, uh, so I, I've counted it an honor to tell you a little bit of my story and the, the book is gives a lot more detail, and I do have a website, uh, srobinsonconsulting.com, if anyone has a desire to find out more or, or reach out. So thank you, ladies. Awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Steve. We have loved having you today, and 
Like I said, I mean, this was we knew it was going to be a rich conversation. I think the amount of information and just the wealth of insights that you provided, we we actually would encourage our guests to listen to this more than once because I think there's it's jam packed and there's so much to take away. So with that, we will say thank you, Steve, and go and exercise your marketing smarts. Still need help in growing your marketing smarts? Contact us through our website, forthright-people.com. We can help you become a savvier marketer through coaching or training you and your team or doing the work on your behalf. Please also help us grow the podcast by rating and reviewing on your player of choice and sharing with at least one person. Now, go show off your marketing smarts.